Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning and to be able to preach. Um, it's been a long time since I have preached, but I'm excited that I can do it here. This is a church that our family has been praying for for a long, long, long time. And I'm really glad that we just kind of, by God's providence, have been brought here to this church. And before we start uh, in Galatians, um, the reading is from Galatians 2. Well, we're going to start in Galatians 1, uh, verse 1. Uh, but before we do that, I thought we might just stretch our legs, maybe say hello to someone in front of us uh, as we set up a few things. Uh, and then we'll get into it. So maybe talk to the person in front of you and ask them how their week was. Very good. All right, if we can take our seats, that would be wonderful. So those of you taking notes this morning, uh, I've entitled this sermon, Galatians, Who Has Bewitched You? And uh, let's get into it. Well, let's pray first before we start. Lord, we just thank you for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It, it pierces to the soul, it divides, um, and it, it works in our hearts to make us more like Jesus. That's the goal of the word, Father. I just pray that it will do its work this morning. I pray that it will penetrate every single heart, that will have attentive ears, that we'll be able to listen to what you're saying through the scriptures, Lord. And we just thank you for Paul, the writer of this book. We thank you that it is relevant today for um, what we're going to talk about. And uh, we just thank you, Father, that we can hear your word uh, in this country openly, Father. And we just pray that we, we will just be doers of the word and not hearers only, uh, as we've been praying this morning. And uh, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the Apostle Paul, one of the most prolific passionate, pointed, unrelenting writers in the Bible. He planted churches. He has one of the most amazing testimonies of coming to Christ ever. Now talk about someone not seeking God. That's Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was going to drag every man and woman he could think of and bind them in chains and bring them to himself just so that he could do damage to the church. Then Jesus, in his providence and in his grace, knocks him off of a horse on the way to Damascus and converts him. Talk about someone who's not seeking after God. Um, that's Paul, and that's us before salvation. So he's one of the most amazing testimonies ever, and he lived a life of danger, persecution, starvation, yet proclaimed Christ wherever he went. And he mentored young pastor Timothy, and he now speaks to us through this letter to the Galatians. There's such a life in Paul that he was completely satisfied with suffering, with plenty, with a lack, with a lot, um, and serving Christ at all costs, even having his life ended from that persecution. And as Matt Chandler from the Village Church says, this is his quote, Paul is untouchable, right? You can't kill Paul because he's going to die and to die is gain, to live as Christ, to die is gain. You also can't persecute Paul because he's just going to preach the gospel in the jail, you can't kill him, you can't keep him alive. Everything he's going to do, it's going to be preaching the gospel. So he was probably pretty infuriating for a lot of people. 
He says, if you let me go, glory to God, I'm going to preach the gospel and get people saved. That's Paul. So as we read here in this portion of text, let's put ourselves there as a church that is new. And I know we've been in church for a long time, some of us. Um, I grew up in church um, since, well, I was in the womb, really, so a long time. Um, but let's put ourselves here as a new church. This is the early church. This is a church that's under threat as soon as it began um, from false teachers, from danger, from persecution, um, from wicked doctrines. And wolves more than happy to pose as righteous preachers with a smile on their face, willing to steal the faith of everyone they can in these churches. So Galatians 1, 1 to 9, here we go. So Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And I was listening to a commentary on this, on what Paul's doing here in this greeting. And not only is he introducing himself as an apostle, but he's also introducing him as someone not sent by man. No man sat down and said, Paul, you're a really nice guy. You're a really good speaker. Away you go into the mission field. No, Jesus called Paul. Jesus sent Paul out. Jesus converted Paul with Paul not ever having heard the gospel taught to him. It was by revelation that he was given the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel in this greeting, kind of sticking it to the, um, the Pharisees here, saying, no, this, I'm sent by Jesus as an apostle. Uh, and he certainly was. So to the churches, churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. And that word there is anathema. It's a very strong word. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So there's something to be said here about Paul's intense introduction to the Galatians. He's verifying his authority as an apostle, having witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus has delivered us from, the, from death in this evil age. Then he quickly turns to how the Galatians have been turned away from the truth into another entirely different thing. So let's have a look at why he wrote Galatians. So Paul wrote this book because the Galatians were being persuaded away from true faith to works-based gospels that perverted the true gospel of resting in Jesus' finished work. And this still goes on today. This is not just an old heresy that just back in the day existed and now it's been pushed aside and we know better as enlightened people. No, this is a heresy that's preached today in many, many, many places. And I'm, I'm going to let you know some personal things uh, relating to this later on. So at the time, there was a transition in the church from having been one of a works-based Hebraic covenant where sacrifices had to be made, rituals had to be followed, tithes had to be brought to Jerusalem every, every year. Sins could only be atoned for by certain people at certain times in a certain place. That all changed when Jesus came along. 
they were lost and very open to attacks from the enemy with regards to being brought back into old habits. The persuasiveness of the enemy would have been strong in this regard, like the snake in the Garden of Eden. The false teachers might have been saying things to the churches like, did Jesus really say that if you trust in him, you'll be saved? Surely you've got to do more. Surely there's something you have to do as a person to add to your salvation. It can't just be Jesus, like someone else, saving you from your sins. Surely, surely you have to pay. But this is not true. God makes sure his truth stands no matter the onslaught against it. And the Bible actually says this. It says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gospel needed to infiltrate the deepest parts of the heart, starting with those who would be able to spread it to the world, from Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the earth, which could include here, as we're doing today. The gospel needed someone like Paul to articulate, to preach and teach the gospel to people in the hot spots where Jesus taught and walked, then get it to other continents, as Paul did. Paul needed to equip the people at the time with the right theology to battle these invading doctrines that quickly tried to throw off believers. And this still occurs today. So who's familiar with the word Judaizers? You've probably heard it a lot. Just a show of hands if you've heard of the Judaizers. Okay, They were especially relentless in their zeal for the law, trying to force believers to take, take on feast days, Sabbath days, new moons, other oral traditions that had nothing to do with God at all, and to add to their standing before God. And Paul clearly describes them in Galatians 4. So this is from Matthew uh, Henry. He says this about trying to keep the law as a Christian. Listen to this. While we declare that to reject the moral law as a rule of life tends to dishonor Christ and dis destroy true religion, we must also declare that all dependence for justification on good works, whether real or supposed, is as fatal to those who persist in it. So what's he saying here? It's actually fatal if you try and keep the law. You cannot do it. And in the end, it's death. Amen. So let's look at a ministry today that's literally doing this. And this is something I have personal experience with, with a couple of people I know. This is a ministry attempting to drag believers back into the old covenant to maintain their salvation by works of the law called Acts 119 Ministries. And you're going to see them in a minute. So... Here they are. This is their website. This is literally a ministry that tried to pull away from true faith to friends of mine and myself. Okay. Now, basically, this ministry gets you on board by getting you frustrated with the modern church. And they pretend they're a kind of discernment ministry and that the church has gone way off track, which, of course, it has at some point uh, in some ways. But then they get you frustrated at what the church is doing. They get you angry with denominations. They get you frustrated at the seeker-sensitive movement. They get you annoyed, okay? Then they play on that annoyance and steer you off track and say, what's really wrong with the church is that we've lost how to be Jewish. We've lost our Jewish identity as Christians. We want to turn you into a Jew. Now, they don't say that up front, okay? This is their doctrinal statement here. They pretend they're a man after God's own heart. 
that they're like King David, truly after God's heart. And then you can see there that says, Our purpose is to seek and bring the truth to all nations, unlearn false doctrines and traditions of men, which they think we would teach in the church, and to equip the body to live and practice the word of God as originally intended. So they've got the real gospel, okay? The true gospel, which is keeping the Torah. Does that sound nice? Sounds nice, but it's not nice. So, this ministry was founded to do what the Judaizers did, exactly what they did in Paul's day, to try and turn people away from the gospel to traditions, feast days, Sabbaths, dietary restrictions, in order to live as God originally intended. So who here has heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement? This is going to be like Theology 101 here. Has anyone heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement? Sacred Name Movement? Okay, a couple of you. So this is going to be good. This is what I'm describing, the Hebrew Roots Movement. We've lost how to be a Hebrew. So this is what they say uh, in their doctrinal statement. We find that continuously examining the scriptures in the same Hebraic first century context and perspective in which they are written and understood reveals to his people much more understanding as opposed to the more common Greek mindset that is a couple of thousand years removed. So these guys hate the Greek New Testament, but that's what was preserved for us, the Greek New Testament. They hate a Greek mindset, which is you're saved by Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. They absolutely hate it. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because two of our best family friends were sucked into this movement. One got out, one did not. Now, the guy that didn't get out, who was a really nice guy, he was a discerning guy, uh, we just hit it off by talking about President Obama and nuclear missiles and politics and the seeker-sensitive movement. But then he tried to steer me in this direction, and I thought, how can I as a Christian keep the Sabbath? like on a Saturday, and ditch my Sunday worship with my fellow believers? How am I supposed to keep these new moon festivals? How am I supposed to obey the Torah with its six billion tiny rules about shellfish and discarding poop further away from the camp and all that stuff? Right? How am I supposed to do that? And he said, it's easy. It's in Deuteronomy. It says that God has given you something easy to do. Okay? Now, this guy that didn't get out of this movement is still sending out emails to hundreds and hundreds of friends every week about how keeping the Torah is loving God the correct way. He says that Jesus' name is evil, that Jesus' name is comes from Zeus, the Greek god. Okay, You have to call him Yahashua. You have to call God Yahweh. And if you dare speak Jesus' name as Jesus, you're calling on the wrong name to be saved. Does that make sense to you? No, doesn't make sense to me either. That would mean that I'm not saved, you guys aren't saved because you called upon Jesus' name, right? This is the movement I'm talking about. This is Judaizing. So they post tons of verses out of context and bamboozle you with confusing word games to discredit Paul. That's what these guys do. The book of Galatians and Hebrews in the process, they discredit those books. They hate the book of Galatians which is what I'm preaching today, they would say, no, 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 that's that's a corrupted book. And Paul had corrupted theology. And the book of Hebrews is really about restoring the old covenant and renewing the old covenant. Um, it's, it's a confusing mess. 
they think that the New Testament scriptures were um, not meant to be preserved in Greek, that the church has believed falsely that the old covenant was done away with and replaced by a new and better one. And this is one of their posts. This is what I'm talking about. That's a good-looking post, right? Anyone would read that on Facebook and go, wow, what a post. But what they're doing is giving you this post and steering you in to then visit their website, to then sign up to their course, which I actually did, and I'm going to show you some of it. But what they're saying is here, Deuteronomy 30.11, all the commands of God are not too difficult for you or beyond your reach, right? So they're going to try and hoodwink you into thinking you can keep all of God's commandments because they're within your reach. But here's what that verse really means. Okay, so... All you have to do is just listen to one commentary and it will dispel this myth. So here's what Matthew Henry says. The law is not too high for thee. It is not only known afar off. It is not confined of men of learning. It is written in thy books, made plain, so that he who runs may read it. It is in thy mouth, in the tongue commonly used by thee, in which thou mayest hear it, read, and talk of it among thy children. It's delivered so that it is level to the understanding of the meanest. This is especially true of the gospel of Christ to which the apostle applies it. Now here's the but. But the word is nigh us, and Christ is that word. So that if we believe with the heart, the promises of the Messiah are fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. And confess them with their mouth, we then have Christ with us. Okay? We don't need the Torah with us, we need Jesus with us. Okay, All of the Old Testament points to Christ. All of the scriptures testify of him. But this movement teaches, no, no, the New Testament reveals what's in the Old Testament. It's the complete opposite of what we're taught in church. And it's really damaging. Now, I signed up for their course. I've done a bit of work for you. I've done two of their modules. And I nearly ripped my hair out and my head with it. Okay, so this is one of their courses. This is one of their emails. They give you 10 weeks of specially selected teachings to get you familiar with Scripture from a Hebraic perspective. Now, the very first lecture that you do with this course is about what really is sin. What's sin to these guys? Disobeying the Torah, not keeping the Sabbath, not keeping new moons, not doing the dress code correctly. Uh, just crazy stuff that we should know as Christians, but they literally have deceived people, including two of my friends. One got out, one didn't. And one actually still keeps a Sabbath for church, but has gotten out of all this stuff. Now, one of the friends of mine, too, gave me this Jewish Bible. And on the outset, that looks quite fine. But what the Jewish Bible does is eliminates the Old and New Covenant. They think there's no Old Covenant or New Covenant. It's one unified book. They've taken out every English name and replaced it with Hebrew names. So you then have to relearn every single name in all of Scripture, including Jesus' name, to correctly understand the Word. Now, this is happening today, like, en masse. Now, what's sad is... The guy that founded this ministry, have a guess what happened to him. He was imprisoned for insurance fraud. Okay? But not only was he imprisoned for insurance fraud, it was insurance fraud using the elderly 
Okay, and this is a guy that's debated people on YouTube. There's a really good debate between him and Chris Roseberry, if you should ever want to have a look at that. Debating how to keep the Sabbath against why Jesus' finished work matters. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because that heresy of Judaism is alive and well today. And any one of you in this room could be hoodwinked. And I don't want you to be. And Jesus doesn't want you to be either. Because you're essentially throwing out salvation by grace for something supposedly higher that's going to kill you. Okay? It's, it's really sad. So, who likes hearing really quick rebuttals against arguments? I do. So I'm going to show you a one-minute video that will dispel everything I've just talked about and reassure you in your faith. So who's ready to hear that? Oh, here's another one of their quotes, by the way. So just before we go. Question. If obedience is how we show God our love and obeying the Torah is bondage, is loving God then bondage? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now they forget that that means Jesus' commandments. Love one another. Okay? Jesus has a new commandment. Love one another. Okay? It doesn't mean keeping all of the Torah. But then if you visit that website, that's what you're going to be fed. Okay? It's really dangerous. So any ministry that pulls away believers from keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus' finished work, sufficiency of Scripture, centrality of the gospel, that cannot differentiate between law and gospel properly, is not safe. Okay? You're essentially drinking poison if you pull your eyes away from Jesus' finished work. Amen? And we don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So we're going to do this little video here. It's one minute. And we may have to press pause and then play if it doesn't work. So just press the pause button and then play. There we go. The Hebrew Roots Movement teaches us that the church has been corrupted by Greek and Roman influences, and we need to get back to our Hebrew beginnings. After all, Jesus and his disciples were Jews, so to be a good Christian, you must be a good Jew. Hebrew Roots adherents, also known as Messianic Christians, believe Christ's death on the cross did not fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, but renewed and expanded it. Therefore, you must keep the Sabbath on Saturday, celebrate Jewish feasts and festivals, and observe the dietary laws. Boy, if there are scores of passages that directly respond to this. Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark 7, 19, and said it again to Peter in Acts 10, 15. In Romans 14, Paul said not to be divided over opinions about days and food. And in Colossians 2, 16, he warned about Judaizers who passed judgment over dietary laws and Jewish holy days. These were shadows of things to come which were fulfilled in Christ. If you were to point to such verses, or the whole books of Galatians and Hebrews, you would likely be told the New Testament you read has been corrupted. Hebrew roots teachers reject historical definitions of biblical doctrines. Their answers are often long-winded, full of myth and speculation, and quarreling over words. They make non-essential issues essential and teach righteousness by keeping the law. Not all are that extreme, but there are still serious problems with telling people to keep the Old Covenant as if it were a higher path. The Bible says the glory of the Mosaic Covenant has come to an end, but the glory of Christ is forever. We're to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life when we understand the text. So how's that? Was that like a fire hose of information? I kind of like fire hoses of information. 
So in one minute, you can dispel the entire Judaizing thing. Okay? So visit whenweunderstandthetext.com for more videos like that. So if we just click next slide, if you guys can, and then I'll be back on. There we go. So what's the solution to all of this? Well, it's in Galatians. So we're going to read verse 11 now. For I would have known... I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers." So Paul had a former life, and that was his life. It was to zealously get rid of Christians. He wasn't seeking after God. He wasn't someone that was praying for answers. He was completely converted, really providentially by God, to then be called as an apostle to then dispel the very thing he was preaching. How amazing would it have been, and scary, to then have Paul join your Bible study the guy that's going to drag you out bound with your wife perhaps, to then be sitting in your Bible study saying, no, 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 Jesus revealed the gospel to me. I'm now going to preach this thing. It's just amazing that God would do that. But we have a formal life of sin and zeal for the wrong things as well before we were a Christian. And I can testify to that. I had zeal for all kinds of ridiculous, self-absorbed things that I now do not. Paul did all of this, even having studied as a Pharisee, and his life was a wreck. And here's some of Paul's story before he became a Christian. So here it is. Saul of Tarsus was born approximately AD 5 in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, modern-day Turkey. He was born to Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship, and this really came in handy for Paul. A coveted privilege that their son would also possess. In about AD 10, Saul's family moved to Jerusalem. Sometime between AD 15 to 20, Saul began his studies of the Hebrew scriptures in the city of Jerusalem under Rabbi Gamaliel. It was under Gamaliel that Saul would begin an in-depth study of the law with the famous rabbi. So not only did Paul want to round up believers who ran scripture studies, but arrested women as well. He had zeal without knowledge. He was there at the first killing of a Christian for their faith since Jesus' resurrection. as uh, Stephen, I believe. This passion for harming the church became one of his greatest assets in helping strengthen and further the church once he was converted. So I actually think God used his zeal for the wrong stuff to have an intense zeal for God's will. He had a, it's just all or nothing. It's Christ among you preached or nothing else. So not only did his Roman citizenship help him escape some tricky situations, but his house arrest allowed him to write most of the New Testament. And with his commitment to Jesus, having been radically saved by him was astonishing. Imagine the gratitude of Paul, the, the heart change. It's just a complete life of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done. And we can have the same gratitude. He had one mission and one mission only, to bring glory to God through preaching repentance from sin and forgiveness in Jesus everywhere he went. And John Gill has a good quote here about Paul, okay? 
His manner and course of life, his state of undegeneracy, how diametrically opposite his education and behavior, his principles, his practices were to the gospel, show that he had not received it, nor was he taught it of men. This is truly God's work done in Paul. There's no way that the gospel could have gotten to this man by his intellect, by his reason, by pure facts or logic alone. Yes, the gospel in itself is theological truth, but Jesus literally ripped Paul's heart of stone out from him and replaced it with a heart of flesh, blinded him with his glory, humbling him, and then in a miraculous way teaching him the truth of the gospel, and then Paul in turn being able to share it exactly as God wanted him to in such a way that others were converted. And we've got to note here that Paul actually, when he received the gospel, he went to the other disciples to check if it was the true gospel. And I was listening to a teaching on that this morning, that Paul didn't just receive this thing, then go splurt it out as a, a private revelation that could have been damaging. He went to check first. He said, this revelation of Christ, is this really the gospel? And the apostles were like, yes, it is. That's the gospel. That's the true gospel. And then they welcomed him as a brother. And then Peter writes about Paul's writings at the time and says, these are scripture as they're being written. These are the words of God to be put together in the Bible. It's just amazing. So the miraculous thing that occurred on the road to Damascus with Paul was an example of how God is infinitely more powerful than our sin, able to save anybody, even those who hate Christianity, hate God with actual physical passion or who has dedicated their life trying to resist God's call to repent and be forgiven. And that's pretty much us this morning. Some of us may have been anti-Christians, not just atheists. We might have been fervently against Christianity. I don't know everybody's story here. Um, and just as a side note, this is crucial in today's day and age. There's been several really public renunciations of faith. Okay, by people that have affected me, that have affected our family. Um, you got the Marty Sampson thing from Hillsong, turning his back on God in a blink of an eye. Okay, now if you don't understand the gospel and it hasn't changed your life, that can happen. If you go and find answers in other philosophies, other worldly nonsense, and forget the gospel, you can be hoodwinked by anything. Um, and we need to stand firm on the gospel today more than ever and also pray for those guys. There's also a family member of mine um, who is going through a crisis of faith as well. And this is deeply personal. Uh, and it's someone who uh, is really, really close to me who has said, there's no salvation in, in any particular God. This is... Um, tearing me up inside to hear this from someone who was raised in church. You probably heard the gospel hundreds of times in different churches, even in Baptist churches, um, after leaving a seeker-sensitive church. This is someone who knows the truth and is turning his back on it. So, yeah, be in prayer for that as well. So, verse 15. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to who those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia 
returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Isn't that amazing? After Paul visits these places, he's still unknown to the churches in Judea. They heard that this persecutor of the church had been converted and were amazed he was preaching the same gospel he was trying to stamp out. Now this is like one of those militant atheist debaters coming to faith. And that has actually happened with a few of those guys. They're just so adamant that they're going to destroy the gospel, they end up becoming saved. It's truly amazing. And this is true of many people that others have known for years as rough, angry, vile people who then had a huge change in their entire personality, actions, and lifestyle once they're saved. And it's pretty cool. So John Gill says this of Paul's complete change after having been changed by the gospel. And I quote, Now this faith, in the several momentous branches of it, the apostle preached, published, declared, spoke out openly and publicly, fully and completely, without dropping, concealing, or keeping back anything, clearly and plainly, without using ambiguous phrases, like we just heard, or words of double meaning, with all faithfulness and integrity, boldness and constancy. In other words, people were amazed at this guy. So imagine for a minute you hear about some kind of hideous criminal, like even someone in the public eye, who then turns to faith. You're kind of confused, you're kind of scared, you're thinking, is this real? Kind of like um, oh, that guy that became a Christian and then went before the firing squad in, is it one of the Bali Nine? He became a Christian and then kind of started like house churches within prison and then was executed. Imagine the eternal impact he's had because the gospel changed his life. It's just amazing what God can do. And God did that with Paul. So wouldn't you act like a Western cowboy in a standoff if you heard of this person coming to your Bible study? You'd kind of have a little bit of inhibition, like, is this? are you truly saved? Are you, did you really hear the gospel? But all it would take is just one conversation and just to look at their life, look at their theology, and you would know, yes, you have been changed by the gospel. So this glorified God. The fact that Paul was now preaching the good news was honoring the Lord, and so was the church's response to him. So now we're going to go to Galatians 2. Here it is. So after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of revelation set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So he's making sure this is true. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, not even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed 
influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we're going to hone in on verse 2. Paul in verse 2 says, When he went to preach the same gospel he preached among the Gentiles to the Jews, he preached the same message wherever he went, repent and believe. That's the message. He was single-minded about what was important in reaching the lost. He understood how the message of Jesus Christ dying to forgive sins was just as important to the legalist, the atheist, the contented sinner, the rich politician. He understood the need for Jesus in all people who stood guilty before God. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ plainly and straight, so plainly that he didn't even sound educated or highbrow when bringing the message, and he often preached crying his eyes out. We've got to remember this about Paul. He had emotion, passion in his voice, in his stature as he was preaching this message. And just as a side note, when we're preaching the gospel to someone happy, to someone rich, to someone sad, to someone lost, the gospel is the same. right? There's no such thing as a separate gospel for someone who's really happy, that thinks they don't need Jesus. And in fact, most non-Christians who earn a lot of money are quite happy. So the seeker-sensitive message isn't going to work with them. Come to Jesus and he'll make you more happy. No, he'll probably start killing sin. He might make you a bit sad for a bit. Jesus said he came to divide. He came to separate sin from us. So the happy person, the rich person, they don't need a different gospel for each person. They need the same gospel, repent and believe. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to stand guilty before God, whether we're rich, poor, sad, happy, running away from God, thinking we're Christians and we're not. We're going to stand before the same God. So Paul knew this gospel would be attacked, and often attacked from within. He especially held biblical doctrine dearly in saying to Timothy as a fresh new pastor, keep close watch on yourself. So this is in 1 Timothy 4.16, if you want to read there. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, so in the good teaching, and for by doing so you'll save yourself and your hearers. So here's how clearly Paul held biblical theology about salvation from John Gill. So here's the quote. That self-same gospel which he had preached and still continued to preach to the Gentiles relating to free and full remission of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, justification by his righteousness without the works of the law, and freedom from all the rituals and bondage of the Mosaic dispensation. Can you see the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant? We're set free from the Mosaic dispensation. The gospel now is the blood of Christ for remission of sins, and that alone. Paul preached salvation by grace alone through faith alone to the exclusion of all human effort. The Judaizers in his day and the ones today sent out to try and destroy the faith of the saints preached the exact opposite. Faith plus a lot of special feasts, a lot of moons, a lot of festivals, a lot of dietary lifestyles. So have a guess what the second email I got was about. How to eat properly as a Christian. 
What foods should I not eat? What foods should I eat? How confusing is that? So now I don't know what sin is and I don't know what to eat. So I'm just going to be like a fasting monk who does nothing and never speaks because I might say the wrong thing. It's absolutely bonkers, but it's real. The false teachings uh, teachers in the New Testament are designed to steal the faith away from the believer using cunning language, trickery, word games, power, greed, and appearing genuine. But this is all a facade. The false teacher who wants to enslave the Christian into dead works of the law, into becoming zealous for particular non-issues that aren't even salvation issues, like food, or to extra-biblical revelation, or to turn the entire scriptures into a lesson on how to obtain fulfilling self-esteem. These teachers are warned about by Paul for a particular reason, because they aren't going to stop trying to steal the genuine faith away from people and make them believe in ridiculous things that will lead them to eternal death. This is serious. Really serious. This is why Paul tells Timothy to guard his teaching. Paul was concerned with right belief in the right Savior. Paul taught for years with tears about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that people might know who he is and believe the gospel and be saved. Any other gospel cannot save and is in fact an imposter. This is why the Hebrew Roots movement is so destructive. This is why the self-esteem movement is destructive. Because do you know what the gospel is in the self-esteem movement? God saves you, not for forgiveness of sins, but to make you a really happy, fulfilled feel good about yourself, person. And Jesus died to save you from purposelessness, not from sin. That's never mentioned. He died because you didn't have a purpose. Now you have a purpose. That's very, very low on the importance of what God has paid for. He paid for sin. Was purposelessness put on Jesus when he died on the cross? No, it was the sin of mankind. This is why Paul wrote Galatians. Because justification by faith is a foundational truth that's been attacked since creation until now. Remember in the garden, did God really say you're going to die if you eat this thing? That's putting your trust in something else. There's always new innovators willing to undermine this teaching, which is what makes me laugh about the modern charismatic movement. Now, I'm, I grew up in the charismatic movement my entire life. And all I heard was this. Are you ready? Here's how to get things from God. Ten steps to get this blessing. Twenty steps on how to position yourself for a miracle. Forty steps on how to pray correctly to move God's hand in your life. Here's a hundred steps on how to create an atmosphere of miracles for your church. These are laws. And by the way, doctrine means teaching. If you teach this stuff, you're teaching doctrine of 20,000 steps on how to do this, 50 million steps on how to get this from God and twist his arm to make him do stuff. They're doctrines that demand you do stuff to get stuff, and it's never, ever easy. So you've got to go through a program. You've got to buy the small group curriculum to get this thing, to then get this special blessing from God. And if you watch a show like Sid Roth's It's Supernatural, who's ever heard of that show? Okay, it's one of the most nutcase shows ever. Okay, they reenact all these weird visitations and just crazy people on there that have been to heaven and received another book of John, but they can't really reveal it because it's secret. All this stuff, right? But what do they do every episode? Someone comes on and they start selling stuff. 
10 things you can do in this DVD to get this blessing. Play this pan flute CD and you'll receive this special miracle. But you got to buy the CD and then make someone money to then get the miracle. It's the same thing over and over again. That's why I got rid of Christian TV in my household. All they play is that stuff. Bar maybe two faithful teachers out of a gazillion. So verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but they were... Sorry, when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's confronting this thing. Peter here was committing hypocrisy by pretending to be a Torah-keeping legalist as soon as some Judaizers arrived to see Peter mixing with uncircumcised Gentiles. He was giving in to the pressure of the old covenant system that Jesus came to eradicate and replace. He jumped ship when it was convenient and maintained appearances when he found it comfortable. And don't we do that sometimes? Like we act a little bit more non-Christian when there's lots of non-Christians around or when someone comes along who's really influential, really powerful, like maybe a politician or someone high and mighty comes along, you just sort of reserve your Christianity a bit. Um, and we jump ship. We just we don't stand firm in the gospel anymore. We quickly tuck Jesus into the back room because he might offend. We do this. So he was in two minds, fearing the approval and smiles of legalists instead of enjoying the new liberty found in Jesus. Even Barnabas was deeply affected by this. Peter was trying to force his double-mindedness towards the Gentiles by attempting to mix with Judaizing, sorry, mix Judaizing with Christianity, much to Paul's disgust. So we can learn from Peter here in that there is hope for us, even in the midst of doubt, sin, and hypocrisy. Paul's rebuke is relevant, and Jesus can forgive us for giving in to deceitful doctrines or for playing the part of a double-minded person dabbling in both worlds of Torah-keeping, Christianity, and biblical Christianity. If any of you have ever been involved in that kind of stuff, there's still hope. Okay, There's still hope for my friend who's literally sending out emails about how to keep the Torah, and I pray for him. And I pray for my other friend who's been hoodwinked into this, and I pray that I won't be hoodwinked into some deceptive stuff that's out there. Like, all you have to do is turn on Christian TV for 10 seconds and you'll be sold something that could steal your faith away. Okay? But God wants us to guard our theology, to guard the good deposit that's been given to us like was with Timothy. So how do we tie this all together? How can we tie in what we've heard into one little package? Because we've heard Paul's life. We've heard what Paul preached. We've heard about this church way back then, you know, thousands of years ago in the New Testament. How can we tie it together for now? This is how we tie it together. Justification by faith is a key doctrine. And Martin Luther knew this. He understood the importance of being brought out of a legalistic, damaging religious system that paralyzes and destroys the joy in a person and made it his aim to consistently preach Justification by faith alone to his hearers. 
So we first learn that Paul, a persecutor of believers, is changed not by mere intellect, not by reason, not by following feast days, festivals, eating correctly. He's changed by the gospel. And his giving up of his life proves that he was committed to Jesus, that the gospel has power to save. And we also learn that we too, if we repent and put our trust in Jesus, are changed totally from sinners who love sin to sinners who hate sin and want to be conformed to Jesus. We can fight the false doctrines of our day, which do include Judaizing. And I hope that I can one day also do a sermon on antinomianism, which is also really prevalent. What's antinomianism? Can anyone tell me what that means? It means the law has no effect at all in the Christian. It has no application. And that if you dare even mention the law to an unsaved person, you're cursing yourself. That's what antinomianism is. It means no law. That's also false. That's the other spectrum. Okay. Let's not get hoodwinked into that either. So the sure word of God contains everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need extra studies and extracurricular stuff and extra feasts and more confusing stuff. All we need is the scriptures. We need them taught correctly, exegeted. We need to listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. We need to listen to what he's saying to Timothy. Take it on board and just trust God with our hearts. Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient there is no higher path that biblical Christianity than biblical Christianity involving feasts and festivals and the Brit Hadash, which they get you to read, which is a non-biblical oral tradition document thingy. Right? We don't need to read that thing. We don't need to throw out our pagan Christmas tree, which they also teach you to do. If you dare celebrate Christmas this year, you're a pagan. Okay? You're pagan, you're unsaved. You can't mention Jesus' name because it's a Greek god. Okay, this is, I was going to use the word nutball. It's nutball. Okay, you're a Christian if you celebrate Christmas. We're justified by the same Jesus that Paul was, and that should give us great joy, as we've been talking about this morning. There's none but Jesus. He alone is all we need, and we're justified by him alone. So let's listen to what Martin Luther has to say. Now, this is an old dead guy telling us something today that we need to be doing today that's super relevant. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Amen? We're prone to forgetting that. That's why we need communion. We need to know that Jesus Christ is enough. He saves us. We don't. And just think about the guys that were dying next to Jesus on the cross. One blasphemed Jesus to the end, one was forgiven on the spot. Did he do anything to be forgiven? He was there, breathless, dying, bleeding, his life flashing before his eyes, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. What's he justified by? Did he do any good works? Did he do anything? He just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's who we need to be in this life. We need to be that guy saying to Jesus, forgive me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then go on to do our good works. So sometimes we pretend we're doing something to help out Jesus in his saving work. 
But in reality, he's accomplished everything on our behalf. Everything. The ransom, the substitutionary death, the defeat of death and the devil, the power to kill sin. Jesus has paid it all and he's offered you all of it. You remember in Ephesians, it says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a little bit of blessings and then you do stuff to get more. Jesus has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And he's doing that today. He continues to shape us into people that act like he does. So does that give you a bit of a bit of better picture of Jesus' justification for you? Okay? And all that's going on out there in this crazy world that's out there to attack faith, to steal your faith away, we can fight that with Christ. Christ will fight on our behalf these completely crazy doctrines that are out there. But I think what we need to do is just pray, and we'll close up here on Martin Luther's quote. And if you want to speak with me or anyone about maybe there's stuff you've been hoodwinked into, maybe there's stuff you've been thinking about that's just nagging away at you, that you want to know if it's true or not, you can talk to, to me or Pastor Daryl or one of the elders about that and just clarify it, like get it out there. Because there's so much we can be hoodwinked into if we just let our guard down and just kind of soak up everything. So let's pray and uh, then we'll worship God. Lord, we thank you for your word that is powerful, that is true. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross. That is enough. It truly is enough for us. We don't need to add to it. We can't. Just like the Ark of the Covenant, we can't touch the thing and hold it up ourselves and live. We need to just let you do your work, Father. And we just thank you, Lord, that you work in our hearts today as we think about these things. Help us to guard the good deposit that's been given to us, Lord. And help us, Lord, to be joyful, free people that are free in Jesus' name, that have been brought into the new covenant where you paid for it with your blood, Father. And as we worship you this morning, Lord, help us to reflect on these words that are true, that are written about you and your character, your goodness, your mercy, your love. Lord, do a work in our hearts this morning, Lord. Help us not to just hear this stuff and then be bombarded and then just kind of go to sleep, but help us to be awake and alert and to listen to what you have to say to us, Lord. And we just thank you for the liberty that is in Jesus. There is true freedom in your name. Who the Son sets free, he is free indeed. That means truly, truly free. And we thank you for that, Father. As we go from here, Lord, help us to continue worshipping, fellowshipping, loving each other and loving you, Father. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.